Multiple capital injuries! Multiple capital injuries! We are still taking metal, sharpened objects, missiles to include bottles and rocks and hand-thrown chemical grade fireworks. We have been tanked and we've lost the if that's what American tourists are like, I can see why foreign countries don't like American tourists. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans in WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's Great AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, These days, Christy Carpenter finds strength in her family and faith, Washington Post reports. But on some days, one question keeps ringing in her head. Why? After weeks of battling through oxygen treatments, her 28-year-old son died in the hospital two months after being diagnosed with COVID-19. Her 28-year-old son. Mm. Now in Carpenter's Alabama home, the room belonging to Kurt, her, quote, beautiful baby boy and firstborn remains empty, a painful reminder of a life that could have been saved if the family had decided to get vaccinated. She said, it took me uh, it took watching my son die and me suffering the effects of covid for us to realize we need the vaccine. She said we did not get vaccinated when we had the opportunity and regret that so much now. I bet she does. Carpenter said she is determined to not let her son's death be futile. She said if Kurt were here today, he would make it his mission to encourage everyone to get vaccinated Kayla, his sister, she said, and I are carrying out that mission in his memory. Kirk, Kurt Carpenter was a young and otherwise healthy man. The pandemic dealt a big blow to the tight-knit Carpenter family on March 5 
when Kurt, his younger sister, and his mother were diagnosed with the virus, which has now claimed about 610,000 lives across the nation. At first, the three experienced mild symptoms. They slowly began to alleviate, but then a week later, everything took a turn for the worst. When their oxygen saturation levels dropped dangerously, the mother and the son were rushed to Grandview Medical Center in Birmingham. A day later, they both developed pneumonia, and Kurt was put on a ventilator. A collapsed lung was too much for Kurt's body. His organs began shutting down. He was declared dead in early May. His last uttered phrase, according to his mother, is still etched in her mind, quote, this is not a hoax. This is real. His mother said Kurt at first believed that the coronavirus was a hoax. The whole family was hesitant to get vaccinated when the shots became available. It took years to create other vaccines, she said, and the coronavirus vaccine was created very quickly. That made us very nervous. In fact, the mRNA technology used in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines had been in development for about a decade. The Carpenter's reluctance, however, is not unique in Alabama. It's a state with the lowest vaccination rates in the country. According to data from the Alabama Department of Public Health, only 33.9% of the state's eligible population has yet to be fully vaccinated. Much like the Carpenter's, unvaccinated people are often the ones to endure the most severe effects of the virus. In Alabama, as in pretty much every other state at this point, the unvaccinated account for more than 95% of the current COVID-related hospitalizations. And I would add here that even if you think all of this is somehow a hoax or that the vaccines don't work, these numbers are quite consistent. And both the math and the science is really easy to understand. Of those diagnosed and hospitalized with COVID right now, more than 95% are unvaccinated. Of those who die after being diagnosed... With COVID, more than 99% are unvaccinated. It's very simple. A vaccine will almost certainly keep you from being either hospitalized or dying from COVID. That is it. That's the science. That is the math. If you at this point refuse to take a free vaccination shot for whatever reason you have told yourself, your odds of becoming severely ill and or dying have skyrocketed. It is that simple. You do not uh, need to be a contagious disease expert, an epidemiologist to understand it at this point. And if you believe otherwise, you are certainly welcome to, of course. But by the time that you or a loved one or a friend or a co-worker becomes sick and you are proven wrong, well, it will be too late to have gone back. That is certainly the case for uh, uh, Christy Carpenter and her late 28-year-old son. 28-year-old son today. Proceed at your own risk. Uh, and unfortunately, the risks of uh, those of your loved ones and your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers. Even after being discharged from the hospital, Christy Carpenter who lost her, her son but was able to stay alive herself, at least, said that she could, well, she could no longer drive or work for a full month thereafter. She said that she had been on pulmonary therapy ever since her release in late May and still struggles today with fatigue and hair loss and COVID brain. 
I was just reading a study earlier today out of the UK that uh, appears to find that people with COVID uh, actually their brain actually shrinks. Mm. Don't well, know that if you've seen that study. I had not seen that study, but I have seen people discuss how they feel foggy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them have never regained not feeling foggy. It may be related to this. Uh, she said, I lose my train of thought easily. I can't remember, remember parts of conversations, can't remember people's names that I have known for years. She said, I sometimes think I'm going crazy, but I know I'm not. Even worse, she deals with the uh, backwash of memories of her son, a social butterfly who knew no strangers, she says, and whose time was cut short. Yet his death has inspired a renewed appreciation for life and a mission to protect it. Christie said, if we can help keep people healthier and possibly save lives by encouraging others to take the vaccine, then Kurt's death was not in vain. So I'll, uh, I'll hope that Kurt's story today here on this show may have served to possibly save some lives. I don't know. And I don't know, as I noted yesterday, if covering these stories helps or not. Based on some of the feedback that I received after yesterday's show, when I shared some similar stories, maybe they do help. If only to help uh, encourage listeners to help some of their own tragically misinformed family members to understand what is going on and what is not going on. This is not a joke. This is not a hoax. This is it's, it's not a ploy by Big Pharma and the deep state to control humanity. As I've noted, and as callers to this show proved just last week, it's not just Trump supporters who are in denial here, even though they make up the majority of the denialists. I know that some listeners to this show who almost certainly do not support Donald Trump are also in the denial camp because they've been so wildly misinformed by folks who do not have their best interests at heart. I do. And I will not misinform or disinform you uh, for clicks and web traffic and listeners. I will leave the contrarianism to the charlatans, frankly. It's too damn serious and too damn deadly and too damn stupid to not do something about when vaccines are available, they're effective, they're safe, and they are free for all, at least in this country. And yes, they may just save your life or the life of someone you know and or love. So I'm sorry to bore all of you who were smart enough to get vaccinated with, with these stories. But if nothing else, as I have said, my job, I believe, is to inform and to educate the electorate, period, so that they can help themselves and all of us to stay alive and to stay well. Take the frickin' vaccine. Things have gotten much worse since 28-year-old unvaccinated Kurt Carpenter died in Alabama in May, unfortunately. Next door in Florida and nearby in Arkansas, things have gotten much, much worse. Florida and Arkansas currently share a grim distinction when it comes to the spread of the coronavirus. Every one of the two states' counties is now listed as having, quote, high levels of community transmission, according to data from the CDC. Uh, The CDC lists high transmission in nearly every county in several other states right now, including Missouri, my old home state, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. The CDC considers the county to have high transmission if there have been 100 or more cases of COVID-19 per 100,000 residents 
or a test positivity rate of 10% or higher in the past seven days. Uh, nearly 44% of U.S. counties now fall into this category. One state, Florida, accounts for nearly a quarter of all U.S. cases. Well done, Governor DeSantis. Governor and 2024 presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. Florida, with 67 counties, reported an average of almost 10,500 new cases each day over this past week. Wow. More, more than triple the daily average from just two weeks ago, according to data from Johns Hopkins. The case rate in Florida over the past week is more than three times the average U.S. rate. Only Arkansas and Louisiana had higher case rates. Uh, that is the number of cases per 100,000 residents uh, over the past week. Florida hospitals are now grappling yet again with a surge of COVID-19 patients. The uh, director of infectious uh, of infection prevention at the University of Florida Health Jacksonville told CNN last week we could be an entire hospital full of covid in a matter of a month if things do not begin to slow down or vaccinations do not increase. And just a reminder that every COVID patient that is surging in a hospital is a hospital bed that does not go to somebody who's had a heart attack, a stroke or any other life threatening illness. Correct. Florida also reported more COVID-19 deaths than any other state over this past week, almost 300 of them. So congratulations, Florida. Arkansas, meanwhile, with 75 counties, reported almost 12,000 new cases this past week with 56 new deaths, uh, a very high number given the state's population. Uh, which is much lower than Florida, for example. They have a stunning test positivity rate of 19.3, according to Johns Hopkins. And just to, by way of contrast, I noted on yesterday's broadcast that here in California, where state health officials are freaking out right now, and L.A. County a week or so ago reinstituted its indoor mask mandate, uh, on Friday, the California Department of Public Health noted with great concern that the seven-day testing positivity rate had spiked to more than 5%. That was up from less than 1% just a few weeks ago. So they got worried when it was up to 5%. The uh, testing positivity rate right now in Arkansas, 19.3% and climbing. Mm. Just about 36% of Arkansas residents are fully vaccinated, according to Johns Hopkins. The governor uh, has said, if this can be considered good news, Governor uh, Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson said that uh, the push to get people vaccinated is working. There's been a 40% increase in vaccinations since he's been holding town hall meetings promoting the vaccination of late, he said, we're seeing people that were previously resistant or hesitant coming in and getting vaccinated. I hope he's right. But as noted, it is not just the South and the Trump loving states uh, who need to be alarmed right now as the nation's infection rates surged 55 percent last week with the spread of the highly transmissible Delta variant. The most populous county in the U.S. is also recording a high transmission rate. That is, of course, right here in L.A. County. With a population of about 10 million, we reported uh, more than 3,000 new cases on Friday alone. That was the third day in a row that the county has reported more than 2,500 cases here. 
As transmission accelerates in L.A. County, public health uh, uh, cautions that unvaccinated people are becoming infected at 2.7 times the rate of transmission of just one month ago. More than 10,000 cases were reported over the last four days, according to health officials, warning about the accelerating transmission in the county. Hospitalizations are also increasing countywide, the department said, by about 30 percent since last week. So um, this is bad. This is bad and, and, and not getting better, at least not for the moment. I saw this coming uh, several weeks ago when we saw the numbers which had been coming down, the infection rates which had been coming down, begin to tick up and they are now swooping up. And today uh, the scientists at the CDC are speaking out because, uh, well, thanks to all of those who have been misinformed against getting vaccinated, we are all now being penalized. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued updated guidance on Tuesday recommending that vaccinated people and, of course, unvaccinated people now wear masks once again indoors in public settings if they are in parts of the U.S. with substantial to high transmission, among other circumstances. Remember what I said about Florida and Arkansas, every single county uh, in in both of those states is rated as high transmission. Well, that's who the CDC is talking to with the majority of counties also in Missouri, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, also now rated as high transmission counties. According to CDC data, nearly two thirds of U.S. Co- uh, counties have either high or substantial transmission of COVID-19. Forty six percent of counties have high transmission overall. Seventeen have substantial tra- transmission. The guidance is, of course, a reversal from recommendations made two months ago. It comes as the Delta variant is driving up case rates across the country. And according to CDC director Rochelle Walensky, new unpublished data that suggests that vaccinated individuals infected with the Delta variant have viral loads. Uh, that is the amount of of the virus that is within their noses and their throats that vaccinated individuals who are infected with that uh, in some cases have a viral load that is indistinguishable from the level of virus in the noses and throats of unvaccinated people. In other words, if you're vaccinated, uh, you may not get really sick from it, or at least as sick, but you may be just as likely to share it with someone who is unvaccinated and who could get very sick and even die. Again, that's a a small sample in an unpublished study, but it's one of the things that has led the CDC to these new guidelines today. Uh, In another change to their guidelines today, the CDC also recommends universal indoor masking for all teachers and staff and students and visitors to K through 12 schools this incoming school year. That regardless of vaccination status. So we are nailing this thing, aren't we? Mm. Meanwhile, as COVID continues to ravage the nation, lawmakers in D.C., mostly Democratic ones, are hoping to prevent seditionists from ravaging the U.S. government again. 
Disturbing testimony from the first public hearing of the new U.S. House Select Committee investigating the Donald Trump incited attempted overthrow of the U.S. Capitol and the U.S. government and the U.S. Constitution. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Back in May, the Democratic House Homeland Security Chair Benny Thompson of Mississippi successfully completed negotiations with Republican Congressman John Katko of New York, who Republicans had tasked to negotiating with Thompson to work with to create an independent, evenly balanced, bipartisan, blue-ribbon commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol with five Republicans and five Democratic appointees, each with equal subpoena power. The commission was to be modeled on the 9-11 Commission after Congressman Katko had been uh, given the task by House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to negotiate on behalf of the GOP for such a panel Uh, And they got pretty much everything that they wanted in that agreement. Then 35 Republicans in the U.S. House voted against the creation of that panel, though it was adopted anyway, at least in the House. It was subsequently killed in the U.S. Senate after GOP leader Mitch McConnell asked his members as a, quote, personal favor to vote against the formation of of that independent, evenly split, bipartisan commission. It then fell to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to create the House Select Committee that she never wanted to create, a committee that would have a Democratic majority and likely be seen as a more partisan exercise than the independent panel that Republicans had negotiated and agreed to before pulling the football and voting against it in order to kill it. Pelosi's select committee would have seven Democrats and six Republicans, chaired by the Homeland Security Chair Benny Thompson. Pelosi named seven Democrats and one Republican, Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, to the panel and allowed House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who approved the negotiations on the Independent Commission before voting against it in bad faith, to nominate five Republicans to this special House panel that took the place of that commission. McCarthy named his five nominees, three of whom had voted against the certification of the 2020 presidential election on January 6, which the Trump-incited MAGA mob had attempted to stop in their deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol that day. Two of the three 
uh, of the nominees who, who voted against certifying Joe Biden's decisive election win. Congress members Jim Banks of Indiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio, they were rejected by Pelosi. Jordan for downplaying the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812. And Banks for comments that, as Liz Cheney described, attempted to make a mockery of the committee's mission. With that, McCarthy pulled all of the Republican nominees. Pelosi added one more Republican to the panel. Subsequently, that would be Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. And on Tuesday, the special select committee in the House held its first hearing to begin determining what happened on January 6th who was behind it, and how to prevent such an attack from happening again. Chairman Thompson opened today's hearings featuring four of the hundreds of U.S. Capitol and D.C. Metro police officers who risked their lives, at least one of whom uh, that testified on Tuesday nearly lost his life to the angry, violent mob that day. Uh, T Chairman Thompson opened with some remarks and a harrowing five-minute video of the events of that day, including a fair amount of previously unseen and unheard video and audio. Unfortunately, uh, the video, which also includes a bunch of expletives, is not particularly helpful on the radio, but suffice to say it was exceedingly disturbing, as was the testimony from the officers. We don't have time, of course, to air all of this riveting, impactful testimony from the hearing today. Uh, but Desi Doyen uh, got up early out here on the <laughs> West Coast and sat through as much as possible. And we're going to play as much as we can. It opened, of course, with committee chair Thompson detailing just how close the insurrectionists came to succeeding in overthrowing the government and constitutional processes on January 6th, but for the heroic efforts of the police that day. He also spoke of the history of the peaceful transfer of power in the U.S., which until now had always been a key, shining example to the rest of the world. A peaceful transfer of power didn't happen this year. It did not happen. Let that sink in. Think about it. This threat hasn't gone away. It looms over our democracy like a dark cloud. Some people are trying to deny what happened, to whitewash it, to turn the insurrectionists into martyrs. But the whole world saw the reality of what happened on January 6th, and they came close to succeeding. It's frightening to think about how close we were. A few inches of wood and glass an officer turning left instead of turning right. We'll do our job now to make sure the peaceful transfer of power remains a pillar of our democracy. We cannot allow ourselves to be undone by liars and cheaters. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney offered her own opening remarks at today's first hearing of the Select Committee, and I, I just want to include the caveat that it makes me extraordinarily angry that we must share a positive spotlight on folks like Cheney and Kinziger, with whom I disagree perhaps on every single policy issue that they stand for. Nonetheless, I applaud their courage in both joining this committee and in speaking out in no uncertain terms against this horrific authoritarian attempted putsch 
that was on January 6th and still is even now underway by Donald Trump and his mob of un-American supporters. For that, I am actually unspeakably grateful to both Cheney and Kinzinger. Here's Cheney's opening statement on Tuesday. Every one of us here on the dais voted for and would have preferred that these matters be investigated by an independent, nonpartisan commission. Although such a commission was opposed by my own leadership in the House, it overwhelmingly passed with the support of 35 Republican members. It was defeated by Republicans in the Senate. And that leaves us where we are today. We cannot leave the violence of January 6th and its causes uninvestigated. The American people deserve the full and open testimony of every person with knowledge of the planning and preparation for January 6th. We must know what happened here at the Capitol. We must also know what happened every minute of that day in the White House. Every phone call, every conversation, every meeting, leading up to, during, and after the attack. Honorable men and women have an obligation to step forward. If those responsible are not held accountable, and if Congress does not act responsibly, this will remain a cancer on our constitutional republic, undermining the peaceful transfer of power at the heart of our democratic system. We will face the threat of more violence in the months to come, and another January 6th every four years. The framers of our Constitution recognized the danger of the vicious factionalism of partisan politics. And they knew that our daily arguments could become so fierce that we might lose track of our most important obligation to defend the rule of law and the freedom of all Americans. When a threat to our constitutional order arises, as it has here, we are obligated to rise above politics. This investigation must be nonpartisan. We must get to objective truth. We must overcome the many efforts we are already seeing to cover up and obscure the facts. On January 6th and in the days thereafter, almost all members of my party recognized the events of that day for what they actually were. No member of Congress should now attempt to defend the indefensible, obstruct this investigation, or whitewash what happened that day. We must act with honor and duty and in the interest of our nation. America is great because we preserve our democratic institutions at all costs. The question for every one of us who serves in Congress, for every elected official across this great nation, indeed for every American is this. Will we adhere to the rule of law? Will we respect the rulings of our courts? Will we preserve the peaceful transition of power? Or will we be so blinded by partisanship that we throw away the miracle of America? Do we hate our political adversaries more than we love our country and revere our Constitution? I pray that that is not the case. I pray that we all remember our children are watching as we carry out this solemn and sacred duty entrusted to us. Our children will know who stood for truth, and they will inherit the nation we hand to them, a republic if we can keep it. 
Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, good for her. This panel will have the subpoena power, in fact, to get that information she discussed of what went on that day at the White House. Every phone call, every memo, every conversation, at least in theory, those uh, that information and, and, and that subpoena power could have been blocked by the independent commission that congressional Republicans killed. Nonetheless, we'll see if uh, they are able to get at that information. The first officer to testify on Tuesday to what he saw and experienced that day on January 6th was Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell, a naturalized citizen from the Dominican Republic and an Iraq War combat veteran. In emotional remarks, Sergeant Gunnell detailed the violent attacks that he and his fellow officers suffered as they defended the Capitol building, describing it as, quote, medieval hand-to-hand combat, inch by inch. He spoke of how the insurrectionists falsely accused him, a war veteran, of being a traitor. How he realized that he might die in the attack, saying, this is how I'm going to die defending this entrance, he thought. Capitol Police Officer uh, Gunnell uh, recalled thinking that uh, that day that he would die, but if necessary, he would do so to save democracy. Gunnell broke down a bit as he described being unable to hug his wife or son because he was covered in chemicals like bear spray and wasp spray and how he returned to the Capitol after only a few hours rest. He now faces multiple surgeries to recover from his injuries that day. He asked a pointed question about those who criticize athletes who kneel when the U.S. national anthem is played. There are some who express outrage when someone kneels while calling for social justice. Where are those same people expressing the outrage to condone, condemn the violence attack on law enforcement, the capital, in our American democracy? I'm still waiting for them. Despite being our number, we did our job. Every member of the, of the House of Representatives, senators, and staff member made it home. Sadly, as a result of that day, we lost officers, some really good officers. But we held the line to protect our demo- democratic process because the alternative would have been a disaster. We are not asking for medals or recognition. We simply want justice and accountability. For most people, January 6th happened for a few hours. But for for those of us who were in the thick of it, it has not ended. That they continue to be a constant trauma for us literally every day. I'm especially proud to have defended the U.S. Constitution and our democracy on January 6th. I hope that everyone in the position of authority in in our country has the courage and conviction to do their part by investigating what happened on that terrible day and why. This investigation is essential to our democracy, and I'm deeply grateful to you for undertaking it. 
D.C. Metro Police Officer Michael Fanone was one of the officers who was dragged down the Capitol steps. He testified on Tuesday to having been beaten mercilessly by the insurrectionists who he feared would kill him. He testified how he and his colleagues with the D.C. Metro Police that day could not stand by and they went to defend the Capitol on their own volition. How he, normally a plainclothes narcotics officer, this time decided to put on his uniform first. He described being beaten, electrocuted again and again and again with his own taser. How he was, quote, tortured by the mob even after he was no longer a threat to them. That mob, he said, and as his own body cam video shows, was intent on killing him with his own gun or physically uh, tearing him apart until he yelled out, finally, I've got kids, leading some in the mob to regain their senses and escort him to safety. Fanon suffered a heart attack and a concussion during that attack. He noted that no member of Congress suffered what he and his colleagues suffered while trying to protect them, and he expressed anger at members of Congress who are now downplaying the attacks of January 6. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. But too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. My law enforcement career prepared me to cope with some of the aspects of this experience. Being an officer, you know your life is at risk whenever you walk out the door, even if you don't expect otherwise law-abiding citizens to take up arms against you. But nothing, truly nothing, has prepared me to address those elected members of our government who continue to deny the events of that day. And in doing so, betray their oath of office. Those very members whose lives, offices, staff members, I was fighting so desperately to defend. I agreed to speak here today and have talked publicly about what happened because I don't think our response to the insurrection should have anything to do with political parties. I know that what my partner Jimmy and I suited up for on January 6th didn't have anything to do with political parties or about politics or what political party any of you public servants belong to. I've worked in this city for two decades, and I've never cared about those things, no matter who was in office. All I've ever cared about is protecting you and the public. So you can do your job in service to this country and for those whom you represent. I appreciate your time and attention. I look forward to the committee's investigation, and I am hopeful with your commitment We as a country will confront the truth of what happened on January 6th and do what is necessary to make sure this institution of our democracy never falls into the hands of a violent and angry mob. 
Metropolitan Police Officer Daniel Hodges, also an Iraq uh, Iraq War combat veteran, was another officer that we've seen in videos. I'm sure you'll remember him screaming as he was nearly crushed to death, pinned between a door and the surging mob while being beaten, beaten repeatedly. He discussed how one insurrectionist tried and nearly succeeded in gouging one of his eyes out before he was able to escape. Officer Hodges described correctly, in my opinion, uh, those who breached the Capitol that day uh, as terrorists. He rejected the notion floated by Republican Congressman Andrew Clyde and others that the insurrection was nothing more than a typical tourist visit. He described his harrowing experience. He said he believed he was going to be lynched that day. He also injected a bit of levity into the proceedings in direct response to Congressman Clyde's assertion that the crowd on January 6th was really no different from regular American tourists at the Capitol building. If that's what American tourists are like, I can see why foreign countries don't like American tourists. (laughs) (laughs) That was a welcome uh, uh, bit of relief there. Yes. Uh, Capitol, especially uh, before Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn uh, detailed both the physical attacks that he endured and the verbal attacks. As a black police officer, Dunn described the onslaught of racial epithets from the insurrectionists directed to him that day. Now, we are censoring words uh, here that are not FCC safe, but also Officer Dunn's use of the N-word. Now, Desi and I uh, discussed this, and we, we weren't sure what the right thing to do here was, frankly. In one sense, it's more powerful with the officer using the actual word that he was called. But right or wrong, we have erred on the side of safety here, I guess, and we have bleeped those portions of Officer Dunn's uh, still remarkable testimony on Tuesday. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response, they yelled, no, man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded. Well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This n- voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, f- No one had ever, ever called me a n- while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a n- to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been cr- confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, put your gun down and we'll show you what kind of n- you really are. To be candid, the rest of the afternoon is a blur. 
but I know I went throughout the capital to assist officers who needed aid and help expel more insurrectionists. In the crypt, I encountered Sergeant Gunnell, who was giving assistance to an unconscious woman who had been in a crowd of rioters on the west side of the Capitol. I helped to carry her to the area of the House Majority Leader's office, where she was administered CPR. As the afternoon wore on, I was completely drained, both physically and emotionally, and in shock and in total disbelief over what had happened. Once the building was cleared, I went to the rotunda to recover with other officers and share our experiences from what happened that afternoon. Representative Rodney Davis was there offering support to officers. And when he and I saw each other, he came over and he gave me a big hug. I sat down on a bench in the rotunda with a friend of mine who was also a black Capitol Police officer and told him about the racial slurs I endured. I became very emotional and began yelling, how the blank could something like this happen? Is this America? I began sobbing. Officers came over to console me. We can never again allow democracy to be put in peril, as it was on January 6th. To the rioters, the insurrectionists, and the terrorists of that day, democracy went on that night and still continues to exist today. Democracy is bigger than any one person and any one party. You all tried to disrupt democracy that day, and you all failed. I'm, uh, as, as he was speaking there, I'm, I was thinking of uh, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, who said that uh, he wasn't worried at all about the people attacking the Capitol that day, that uh, they all love the police. Mm. They would never do anything to harm a police officer. Republican uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, other than Liz Cheney, the only Republican on the panel, is an Air Force veteran himself. He broke down a bit in his remarks to the officers as he thanked them for their service that day. You guys may like individually feel a little broken. You guys all talk about the effects you have to deal with and, you know, you talk about the impact of that day. But you guys won. You guys help. You know, democracies are not defined by our bad days. We're defined by how we come back from bad days, how we take accountability for that. And for all the overheated rhetoric surrounding this committee, our mission is very simple. It's to find the truth, and it's to ensure accountability. The four officers who testified were asked uh, what they hoped would emerge from the committee's work. Each said that there can be no healing, no moving on without accountability. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn cited the praise for Republican representatives, uh, cited his praise for Republican representatives Cheney and Kinziger choosing to join the committee and noted us four officers we would do January 6th all over again. We wouldn't stay home because we knew it was gonna happen. We would show up, that's courageous, that's heroic. So what I ask from you all is to get to the bottom of what happened. And that includes, like I echo the sentiments of all of the other officers sitting here. I use an analogy to describe 
what I want is a hitman. If a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. But not only does the hitman go to jail, but the person who hired them does. There was an attack carried out on January 6th, and a hitman sent them. I want you to get to the bottom of that. So, thank you. Finally, Officer Daniel Hodges noted that uh, the in investigation of the insurrectionist attack is the sole purview of Congress. And he asked them to find out all the facts, including any of the collaborators involved. Uh, I need you guys to address if anyone in power had a role in this. If anyone in power coordinated or aided or abetted or tried to downplay, tried to prevent the investigation of this uh, terrorist attack because we can't do it. We're not allowed to. And I think um, the majority of Americans are really looking forward to that as well. I think and I hope he is right. Yes. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Well, hey, Desi Doyne. Yeah, hello. It's been a been a fun day on the broadcast so far, hasn't Gosh, it? Gosh, nothing but nothing but a bunch of monkeys that are fun or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> However, that saying That's goes. That's true. Yeah, the old saying about a bunch of monkeys that are fun. Uh, in any event, uh, more fun than a bunch of monkeys that are fun uh, <laughs> is unfortunately not our latest green news report more than a month's worth of rainfall in just 24 hours we could see that again in the coming hours london the latest metropolitan center to be hit by torrential storms and floods volatile middle east grapples with extreme heat power and water shortages plus corners of the so-called first world are getting their first taste of what fossil-fueled wealth could ultimately cost. New study warns the cost will be very hot and very expensive. All of those expenses and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. These people are crazy. Whatever happened to cows? Remember they were going to get rid of all the cows? They stopped that. People didn't like that. Remember? No, actually, I don't remember. You know why they were going to get rid of all the cows? People will be next. People will be next. And you say those people are crazy? Sir, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, first off, apologies for playing Donald Trump there. <laughs> but he's back. He's saying nonsense. And I think people should know about it. Yes, and he is not going away. Unfortunately, 
What do you have for us that isn't insane today? Well, climate scientists have widely expressed shock at the wave of extreme weather events slamming across the northern hemisphere that underscore how nations are not ready for the accelerating impacts of a climate-changed world. After destructive storms and floods in recent weeks hit Germany, Nigeria, Oman, China, and Turkey, over the weekend, a month's worth of torrential rainfall hit famously rainy London, flooding roads and subways and forcing two hospitals to close. A month's worth of rain in 24 hours. Yep. Nothing wrong with that at all, I guess. In Mumbai, India, unusually intense storms caused widespread regional flooding and landslides that killed at least 25. Torrential storms and flooding hit 30 villages in Uganda. In China, officials say last week's rainfall exceeded all records over the past 5,000 years and caused $10 billion in damages in Jeju City alone. Five thousand years. But it's also extreme heat. Finland just saw 31 consecutive days above 77 degrees Fahrenheit. That is the longest heat wave ever recorded in that country and led to a spike in heat-related illnesses. In North Africa, heat waves have brought unprecedented temperatures topping 122 degrees. Mm. But it is absolutely the worst in the Middle East. The New York Times reports that decades of neglect and underinvestment have left the Middle East's rickety electric grid un able to meet demand, plunging homes and businesses from Lebanon to Iran into darkness and stirring unrest. Temperatures in several countries have already topped 122 degrees Fahrenheit, among the highest ever recorded, causing repetitive blackouts. Bloomberg reports that in Iran, the hottest summer in decades has triggered water shortages that in turn are sparking deadly protests as extreme heat waves bring day after day after day of record and near record temperatures. Wow, just a little preview of what we may be looking at in this country before too long. And speaking of, new research published Monday in the journal Nature Climate Change warns that record-shattering heat waves, even worse than the one that recently hit the U.S. Pacific Northwest, are likely to become much more common in the near future as the rate of man-made global warming accelerates. Great! The study projects that extended extreme heat waves lasting a week or more are likely to hit up to seven times more frequently over the next 30 years, Mm. warning that officials must begin preparing preparing now to adapt to unprecedented extremes rather than relying on data from heat waves of the past. They won't. Without major emissions cuts after 2050, such extreme heat could occur up to 21 times more frequently. Dr. Russell Vose, chief of climate monitoring at NOAA, who was not involved in that study, told CNN, The last seven years have been the warmest on record, and they really stand out from the record that preceded it. In fact, To me, when I look at them, it almost hints at a bit of an acceleration in the rate of warming we're seeing globally. I don't expect 10 years from now that we'll be cooler than we are today. If you're a betting person, it's probably a safe bet to assume we'll be warmer in the future, barring, say, some major volcanic eruption. What does it say when we are rooting for a volcanic eruption to keep our climate cool? U.S. officials announced on Monday that Lake Powell, the second largest reservoir in the United States, has fallen to its lowest level on record since it was first filled more than 50 years ago. In California, state regulators warned that thousands of farms will soon be cut off from surface water deliveries because intensifying drought is drying up the state's rivers, threatening the survival of the state's million-dollar salmon industry. Officials say most winter-run Chinook salmon in the Sacramento River are likely to die this year. Mm. 
Finally, some good news. The Biden administration on Monday moved to reverse a major Trump administration regulatory rollback. The EPA started the process of restoring regulations to reduce toxic arsenic, lead and mercury that pollutes rivers and streams near coal plants across the country. Some good news amongst a whole bunch of really not good news. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It is a cruel summer. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, yeah. who is just a little punchy after being <laughs> up since uh, since dawn today to record the uh, <clears throat> House Select hearing. Which, you know, I, I encourage if you have the time that you should watch the whole thing. It is it is very impactful and it is, I think, um, an important historical moment that requires attention be paid. Well, sure. Now you're serious, aren't you? <laughs> all right. We got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, along with all of the shows we have ever done in my entire life. That's all <laughs> free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves to do whatever the heck it is we do here every day. Hopefully make you a little bit smarter and, yeah, maybe even give you a laugh or two along the way. And maybe give ourselves one along <laughs> the way. Uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. We will, uh, until we meet again tomorrow, I will see you there. Until we see you here. Yeah, see, I'm punchy too. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.